0: Welcome to Empire State Political Pulse with your host, former Brooklyn Assemblymember Jim Brennan. Jim delves deep into the dynamic world of Empire State Politics, offering with his guests a seasoned perspective on the latest political developments, key issues, and the ever-evolving landscape of New York's political arena. So sit back, relax, and enjoy.
1: Hello, this is Jim Brennan, your host for Empire State Political Pulse. Today I'm joined by three very knowledgeable guests to discuss the migrant crisis in New York City, where as many as 119,000 persons are in the New York City shelter system, more than 65,000 of them recent international migrants. We have with us uh, Rahul Jain, Deputy Comptroller, Office of the State Deputy Comptroller for the City of New York, I also want to acknowledge uh, State controlled Tom DiNapoli and his authorization for you to participate. And uh, we have uh, Will Watts, who is joining us, who is the Deputy Executive Director for Advocacy at the Coalition for the Homeless. And Dave Wilkins, uh, Director of Immigration and LGBTQ slash HIV Advocacy at Staten Island Legal Services, part of the Legal Services Corporation of New York. Welcome to all of you. Uh, why don't uh, you, Rahul, start? Give us an idea of who you are and and how the your office, the state deputy comptroller's office, or the uh, for for the, for the city of New York, what its role is in relation to this topic.
0: Sure, thanks for having me, Jim. Um, so, as you pointed out, the special deputy comptroller for the city of New York, but it's a state uh, under the state comptroller, Tom DiNapoli, and uh, this office was created actually just. As the fiscal crisis is brewing over 50 years, around 50 years ago now. Um, and the office uh, has an oversight role uh, on behalf of the state, effectively, uh, to understand what, what's going on with the city fiscal and economic and ensure that we don't go back to those times. So uh, obviously, this is an issue that has had uh, created great budget volatility, and we've been following it quite closely since last April.
1: Thank you. Uh, Will, why don't you just you. say a little bit about yourself and your organization?
2: Well, thank you very much, James, for having us here today and for allowing us to be part of this inaugural episode to talk about this very important topic. Um, As you acknowledge, I am the deputy executive director for advocacy here at Coalition for the Homeless, where I'm responsible for overseeing basically our policy and litigation work, as well as the monitoring work that the Coalition for the Homeless does. And for those of your listeners who don't know much about coalition for the homeless uh we've been around for 42 years but we came into existence because of the right to shelter our co-founders were the were instrumental in making sure that that right was was in place and as a result of the last 42 years we've been focusing on protecting and expanding that right for all unhoused new yorkers regardless of where they've come from how long they've been here or, or their status. So we've been focused on that from a policy standpoint, but also we provide a lot of direct services to individuals, whether it is job training, providing food and clothing, to eviction prevention and other special programs for unhoused youth. So looking forward to being able to talk about a little bit more about work, but also the critical importance
1: of right to shelter at this time. Thank you. And uh, Dave Wilkins, uh, why don't you just uh, tell us a little, little bit about yourself and, uh role of uh, the Immigration Unit at Legal Services and its relevance here today. Sure. Thank you so much for
3: having us. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm the Director of Immigration and LGBTQ HIV Advocacy. Staten Island Legal Services is part of Legal Services NYC, and so we're the largest civil legal services organization in New York. In addition to immigration, we have a housing practice, foreclosure defense, education advocacy, all sorts of civil legal services. We have a physical brick-and-mortar presence in each of the five boroughs. And our immigration unit, both at Staten Island and at the other legal services NYC branches, works on a wide variety of immigration matters. Uh, my per- personal background is doing removal defense for folks who are seeking political asylum here in the United States. So we work a lot with recently arrived people who are fleeing Uh, threats and harm in their homeland. But we also work on other kinds of humanitarian visas like U visas for victims of crime, T visas for victims of human trafficking, special immigrant juvenile status for uh, unaccompanied minors, and other forms of immigration relief,
1: depending on the needs of our clients. Extraordinary work, all of you. Well, let's get right to this uh, topic here. Uh, At a town hall meeting in September, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, discussing the migrant crisis uh, stated, this issue will destroy New York City. We can probably acknowledge this was a bit of heated rhetoric on the part of the mayor to focus attention on a serious problem, but uh, what is your take on exactly what the mayor said and what it means from where you sit? A budget analyst, an advocate for the homeless, an immigration lawyer. Yeah. Raul yeah.
0: Sure. Um, so, you know, I I think maybe the... I. I I think the mayor hopefully was talking about some of the fiscal impact that had just come up at that time about a month earlier a right. letter had leaked um, I won't get into the legal terminology but there was a conference is my understanding uh, where the state and the city are party to this uh, agreement and um, and and it, it, the, there's a significant cost that he came out with 12 billion dollars was the number i think was the headline number that number is actually 1.45 billion last year uh 4.7 now expected this year and 6.1 next year and that's obviously for any budget even one the size of the uh, city of new york is a humongous effect and and so i think this all came out as um the city was looking at initiating some substantial uh, savings initiatives and is also looking for support from the state and federal government. And uh, and I think that's really what he was sort of speaking to there.
1: Uh, Will, what, uh, what's your take on the migrant crisis destroying New York City?
2: Well, you know, I have to say, heated or not, you know, that language was particularly problematic for a variety of reasons. Um, I can probably talk about those for a while, but I'll just focus on one, and, and that is that you know, coming from the mayor, such language that sort of bolsters whether it's xenophobic or racist views, and plays into this sentiment that it's the new arrivals who are to blame. Just seems to um, overlook that a significant reason we are in this current situation is policy choices that have been made by this administration, and by and by the state. Um, mass homelessness existed before new arrivals started to come into the city in March of 2022. At that time, there are about 48,000 people in city shelters, and we know that that number was an undercount of the number of individuals that were unhoused. And coupled with that, um, the city's affordable housing stock has been, especially if you're looking at those with rents under $1,500, has been on a precipitous decline for some time, and that just further compounds the, the mass homelessness we've been experiencing. But instead of investing in whether it's uh, city FEPS measures uh, that the city council passed or more affordable housing, you know, this administration passed policies that I know we're going to talk about, like the 60 day notices, and has been slow to invest in case management services that would have been critical to addressing the needs of all of our new arrivals that were coming in. And and that's just on the city side. I mean, on the state side, you know, the the governor has failed to implement a decompression strategy or provide more resources, including sort of resettling opportunities outside of the city. And I know the governor recently announced, you know, uh, this opportunity to connect individuals with jobs. But even now, months in, it's still unclear, like, how many people have benefited from this program, how it's working. And so all of these things just suggest to me that the the policy failures are the things that would ultimately destroy the city if that were to come um, to, be, to bear, not the fact that we have new arrivals coming into the city.
1: Thank you, Will. Uh, Dave, um, what's your take on uh, the mayor's statement that uh, the migrant crisis will destroy the city, uh, looking, looking at it from the view of an immigration lawyer?
3: I mean, I think I, I agree with much of what Will said. The first thing that really struck me was that it's just also ahistorical. I was at part of a team retreat at Ellis Island last week and was just thinking about how we processed something like 12 million entrants in 35 years at Ellis Island. I mean, obviously...
1: You said 12 million entrants in 35 years? It was
3: something something like that. <laughs> Somebody could check check, the, check my memory right, on will
1: We'll verify that in a minute there.
3: Um, but it... Uh, truly staggering numbers of people. And of course, you know, no one would doubt or no one would deny that this is obviously a challenging situation for the city of New York. But other cities, other states are looking at us for leadership, both logistical and moral. And so the thing that was just really upsetting about the mayor's rhetoric was it plays into this narrative that recently arrived people fleeing horrible situations in their home countries who are coming here as refugees are responsible for destroying the fabric of New York. I mean, New York is a city of immigrants. It's something like 35 to 40 percent of New Yorkers were born outside of the United States. So if you think about how many people belong to immigrant households, I imagine it's a majority of the city. And so, you know, while I don't want to downplay the significant challenges from a logistical perspective to helping, you know, get all of these folks connected to legal services, connected to social services, it was just kind of frustrating to lose that moral leadership. Like, this is a challenge that we should be rising to as a city, not almost kind of seeding and saying, well, this will destroy the city as we know it. Um, And I'm happy to talk further about all of the things that make the interplay between the city and the federal government on immigration so challenging, but also the real problems
1: that folks are leaving their home countries for to come here. Understood. Uh, Mr. Jane, um, the the special uh, state deputy comptroller's office publishes regular reports on the city budget and assesses some of the risks when the city's forecasts might be wrong. Uh, And so, what do you what do you make of the mayor's uh, sense that this is going to cost the city 6 billion dollars next year what's what could be the impact of that and how realistic is that
0: so i think you know not to get too technical but uh, the city puts out a financial plan update which is as Jim's pointing out that's that's what we report on <clears throat> each time it comes out those are the city's formal forecasts those these numbers are not actually in the city's formal forecast these are uh the numbers that were in the in the forecast was about 2.9 for this year as I mentioned they're now saying 4.7 and then 1.1 1. 1 billion for next year which they're now saying is 6.1 that is a huge difference right and so that is as you call it would be what you call a budget risk and so we would add that on top of the risk the city is already expecting, and say, okay, well, this is the number that we think is the budget gap. And prior to this uh, letter coming out, we already had a 9.9 billion dollar number next year. And the hope always is that, listen, this you know, evasive recession that they keep talking about doesn't uh, occur, or or at least it's not as it's more shallow than you expect. And so the you know the hope is that you can start to close that gap using other other ways. Uh, I think. The thing about this situation that's been frustrating is um, just how volatile it can be. And while we We our office did say we expected next year to be uh, more costly than one billion dollars. We had it about two point nine again. We figured that they would not be out of this yet. We don't really see the federal uh, a ton of federal changes happening, and so at least sort of staying on the level was a conservative way of saying you guys should be looking at this expense. The number that came out was a little bit jarring, even for us to to be more than double um, was unexpected. So I think it's fair to say that there's. Well, in any budget, there's limited resources and you need to allocate them. I think uh, what this requires the city to do is look far and wide in terms of where it can make some savings, right, if it's not going to have additional revenues. And, and hopefully it will, where we are seeing revenues come in a little higher uh, so far this year. um, and, and that maybe needs to be spread. And I think, you know, going back to this savings plan that they've suggested that they're going to have and it should come out this week, the first round, um, the hope is that you can find that by being more efficient with the way you're providing city city services, not necessarily uh, cutting city services, right? And that would be a real shame if we were to cut the services. Uh, I also think um, one of the concerns as a general matter, and we haven't looked into we have not done audits on this yet, but we, uh, is I think the, the cost, uh, not the only that it came out of nowhere, but that some of the... Uh, isolated costs of housing of are are much higher i think than people expected. they get sticker shock when they see this kind of thing so and and i think this goes back to when somebody mentioned case management services at first the city really just moved to housing folks and um i think that there needs that, that this more comprehensive view could actually be more cost effective uh you know ultimately so we we haven't seen that yet but uh, you know at, at the end of the day is the number reasonable i can say that the the numbers that we saw in the middle of w- that the financial plan included were not really reasonable right we've seen them I mean ad- uh, did not really reflect the estimate reality. how much it was going to yes, be absolutely and these numbers are more reasonable I think whether or not six billion dollars is, is is realistic uh, really depends on the continued influx it depends on federal and state uh, policy uh, changes and I mean that both in and out there's the federal piece about uh, who's coming in and the pace at which they're coming in but there's also the federal Piece about how we get folks into work and and being productive parts of uh, the the society and I think one thing that's key here and I think the other folks maybe or uh, they're nodding their heads might agree is that we can have. Uh, these folks turn into taxpayers and New Yorkers that help each other out, right? And that's the that's been happening for. Me, that's what the city is built on. Uh, so it's hard to be sure about what the implications are budget wise when you think about it that way. But in terms of the actual cost, we are getting to a point where yes, these numbers are in the realm of what's realistic, and they're certainly more realistic than what was uh, in the financial plan originally.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Will uh, recently, the, uh, the 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 city government has basically gone to court to modify the right to shelter, including uh, deadlines uh, for single adults, deadlines for families, and there's uh, now a litigation ongoing in which I know your office is involved. What's the status of that litigation? And uh, it's sort of dropped off the radar publicly. Are there negotiations going on? Is there some, I don't know if you can necessarily discuss exactly what's going on in the conversations in the judge's office, but Mm -hmm. what's the status of these efforts by the city to change the right to shelter?
2: Absolutely. And I guess to, um, before answering that part of the question, it's probably helpful to explain just generally uh, three things. So first, you know, uh, I just want to acknowledge that the right to shelter remains intact. Um, There haven't been any court orders or any modifications to the law since went before the city began this phase of the litigation. Um, and, and second, it's important to understand that what the city was actually seeking was quite expansive. I mean, they, if they were permitted to move forward or have in place what they were asking for, they weren't just seeking to address the, the migrant situation. Their most recent proposal that they set forth in, in their letter on October 3rd requested the ability to exclude uh, from shelter not only new arrivals, but also individuals receiving disability benefits. Some individuals who receive less than minimum wage, and other very vulnerable individuals. So the impact, and I'd be curious from a number standpoint, but the impact definitely would have meant more individuals out on the streets and having to utilize emergency services and other services in order to spy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's, that's so, a good point. One of the, the final points, I guess, just to set up sort of the where we are in litigation, um, is a, is a unique sort of procedural issue. Not to get in the weeds too much, but it's. it it definitely kind of helps inform or explain why it is that people are probably seeing what they're seeing in the press. And it's something I call the mother may I phase of the litigation. So back in the 70s or 80s, whenever this was settled, um, the, the parties decided that they would not be able to just rush into court if they needed to do something with respect to the consent decree, that there would be this request to be able to do so from the court so the the letter that the city submitted back in May basically said we want to ask you your honor can we move forward with a motion to uh, modify the consent decree that kicked off a series of opportunities for us and for the state to be able to submit letters and response and to then give the, the judge an opportunity to assess whether or not to grant the city's request to move forward with litigation. That's basically where we've been since May. And uh, so where we are right now is just continuing to discuss the issues. Um, as you said, we are in mediation and and in order to kind of move forward, the judge wants to make sure that we have have a conversation with one another. Um, I, I should note, you know, we've been talking to the city since this whole situation began, long before they filed their letter back in May. What's different now is that this conversation is happening uh, one with the state, which was not in the room at the time, and also it's happening, of course, with the judge and with all the powers that come with his office and his ability to help us to hopefully have a conversation that will hopefully steer us towards resolution. Um, But we've been putting forth solutions, so some of the things like the case management and other issues have been things that the city has now been taking to heart and beginning to implement. And we're hopeful that just having this opportunity to engage the state as well, we can talk about ways in which all three parties can hopefully address the solution or address the issue. Um, But that's essentially where we are, continuing these conversations and hopeful that we can resolve this through mediation without having to get into protracted litigation.
1: Understood. Uh, Dave, you know, as an immigration lawyer, you're basically involved with helping people either get asylum or prevent getting themselves getting deported. And you mentioned that you uh, are involved with some TPS, which is the temporary protected status for the Venezuelans that the Biden administration indicated they could stay in the United States legally under this uh, status. Uh, what's it like to actually get somebody uh, asylum? How long does it take? How many people win and how many people lose?
3: So yeah, I mean, the to back up just for a brief moment, as you point out, the federal government has in the immigration system relatively limited ways to respond to humanitarian crises in other countries. Either you're making an individual determination, as in the case of asylum, that somebody has a well-founded fear of persecution in their home country. And that has to be made on an individual case-by-case basis, either by the asylum office, if it's an affirmative case, or by an immigration judge, if the person's in removal proceedings. Or there's something called temporary protected status, where they can designate a class of countries that's going through some kind of, you know, internal strife climate-related problem, et cetera, where people can receive kind of this temporary reprieve from deportation and apply for a work permit. And so in the case of the Venezuelans, the great thing is that as a class of people, they now don't need to have their case individually reviewed on the merits by an immigration judge. They can apply for temporary protected status through USCIS, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, where an immigration services officer is reviewing the paperwork. It's a much faster application.
1: So- this thing that the Biden administration did for TPS for Venezuelans is sig- is very significant. It's very significant. and and in the shelter system itself, it's significant.
3: Yeah, because i I don't know the exact numbers, but a relatively large, let's say plurality of people who are recently arrived are Venezuelan. Historically, there weren't a ton of Venezuelan migrants coming up to New York. A lot of folks were you know going to uh, Florida and the Miami area. And so the big hope is that this will help alleviate the pressure a little bit on the shelters because if people can apply for temporary protected status, apply for the corresponding work permit, get better jobs more quickly, then they can move out of the shelter system and sort of free up resources for other folks. But the decision whether or not to designate a country as a TPS designated country is a very political decision. I'm not anticipating that many other countries will be designated as TPS countries because there's sort of all kinds of political political questions that go into who gets designated for TPS. So then that leaves everybody else in the position of having to apply for political asylum. And what that requires is that people have a hearing in front of an immigration judge specifically about the merits of their individual case. They're almost always required to testify on their own behalf, present evidence, present witnesses. And that process can take... I mean, the the federal government has been trying to sort of move on a more expedited docket with some of the recent arrivals, but still, at a minimum, it takes, let's say, 12 months to 18 months. But honestly, in practice, it takes anywhere from two to four years.
1: Just for one asylum
3: case? For one asylum case. And the cases are quite labor-intensive because if you're doing them well, um, it requires that you talk with people extensively multiple times about traumatic situations, things, awful things that might have happened to them in their home country, and working with such vulnerable clients requires an enormous amount of skill and just an enormous amount of patience. You can't have one conversation and then go to court. You're working on developing rapport with a client. You have to work on developing a lengthy affidavit that's sort of explaining the basis of their claim and then preparing people to testify in support of that affidavit. It's an extraordinarily labor-intensive process, and While, of course, I think it's a wonderful thing, asylum is not necessarily the most nimble response to humanitarian crises in other countries because it is so labor intensive and requires such an individualized assessment. But historically, the federal government hasn't used TPS that often to designate, you know, and it usually requires that there be, you know, some extreme event like a civil war or a catastrophic natural disaster. And, you know, other countries that have been designated are like Syria, South Sudan, you know, other countries where it's actively a war zone at present. And so asylum can just be really challenging because it takes so long. People are living in limbo. You can apply for work authorization after you submit an asylum application. And then after submitting the asylum application, you still have to wait 150 days to be eligible to apply for the work authorization. And all of this um, law and regulation happens at the federal level and you know there's no easy fix to you know shortening the amount of time that it would take to get a work authorization after applying for asylum fixing the asylum like that's something beyond what the city or the state can do it's a federal issue we haven't had comprehensive immigration reform since 1986.
1: right you know all of you uh, have uh, so many interesting things to say about uh, this extraordinary topic but uh, there's a there's a time uh, deadline for this show, and uh, I hope people have been interested. Maybe you could just offer one additional perspective, each of you, on this topic, and then we'll have to wrap it up. Rahul Jain.
0: I think it's important that we recognize that this is one part of the budget problems. It's a big part, but it's not the only part. The city has spent on a lot of other things that it needs to get into check, so that's, that's part of this. And I also think it's a, important that... Uh, we recognize that it it the city is dealing with it and it's the front actor but as as pointed out here um, the feds are really in control again of both folks coming in and folks getting into our society, and and without a you know some greater clarity on the policy side and ideally the funding side, but definitely the policy side, it's very hard for the city and the state to respond in a way that's going to make uh you know make for the best outcomes for these folks, and quite frankly for the city and the state, because again we want them to be contributing
1: members of society, and I don't think I want that to get lost here. Understood. Will, what's your what's your final take on? Well, you'll be you'll be working on this for probably for years to come. But uh, as of right now, what what do you think? What's your?
2: Yeah, I, I think that one of the things that's really critical, at least from our vantage point, is making sure that the policy uh, choices that we're making are smart choices. And one of those choices is not to er- uh, erode the right to shelter. That is the the wrong policy at this time, both in terms of. Uh, subjecting or relegating individuals to the streets at a time when it's going to be really cold. I mean, the Callahan litigation that gave rise to the right to shelter um, was basically documenting how people were dying on the streets as a result of frostbite, hypothermia, and lack of food. So for us to kind of go back and have more and more individuals subjected to that just seems inhumane and the wrong policy choice at this time. We, we've had these productive conversations around the importance of having case management and, and thinking about how to identify needs to be able to help folks move along and identify what would create stability in their lives. And, and so those are the things that we think are smarter and, and are going to have more better outcomes and more long-lasting outcomes for the families that have been already traumatized greatly coming to this country. And, and so yeah, those would be the things that I encourage as well as know the state taking a more active role here um the city cannot bear this on its own and while uh, i appreciate what my colleague was just sharing about the federal policies and where that sort of stuck you know we definitely do need the state then to kind of step in and provide some support as much as it can to relieve the pressure off the city so we're just hopeful that these mediations will continue and that we'll be able to reach some solutions that will allow the state to take a more active role But if anyone is looking for more opportunities to get involved, you know, definitely check out the website, uh, Coalition for the Homeless. We've been uh, putting together a couple of actions that will allow folks that want to support the right to shelter to be able to do so, both a petition to the mayor as well as a rally uh, that we're going to be hosting on December 5th, which is basically Right to Shelter Day that we honor every year. Uh, But uh, we definitely need people involved in the process and and having some patience around allowing some of these policies, whether it's TPS, Case management or other things to be able to take hold and allow people to to find the stability that they need.
1: Thank you, uh, Dave. Uh, any final thoughts on how this is going to play out and what what role uh, the immigration lawyers uh, can play? Sure.
3: Uh, I want to echo uh, what Will just said about patience. I think being a key word for patience. The, yeah, for New Yorkers mm-hmm. to think about right now. I understand that a lot of people are justifiably quite nervous about the budget implications, and this is a very complex issue, and it's easy to sort of feel overwhelmed and thinking about these uh, migrants as a number and not as a collective of individuals. But I'll say talking to people day in and day out, folks have come overland on foot for you know about 2,000 miles, coming now physically from Ecuador, Peru, Venezuela, other countries in South America, and coming on foot through Panama, through Costa Rica, through Nicaragua, you know, yeah. through the jungle. When people are subjecting themselves to that, there's a reason that they're doing so. You know, people are fleeing horrible situations, be they political violence, interpersonal violence, uh, sort of gang and cartel violence, extreme poverty. There are a lot of reasons that people are fleeing, and it can a little bit. It can be easy to for that to be lost in the narrative when we're thinking about this group as kind of a monolith. And I just wanna urge New Yorkers to kind of think about these folks as their new neighbors, um, rather than sort of a problem that must be fixed. Of course, you know, the immigration community, already a little bit overburdened as it is, has been working hard to try to help orient people. I can tell you that all of the applicants that I talked to are dying to get out of the shelter system, get their jobs, support themselves. But, you know, while they're waiting to get work permits, they don't have a lot of options. And so I can say that, you know, on behalf of the immigrant community, folks are really excited to be productive members of the New York Society. But uh, there's just policy and logistical reasons why that's a little bit challenging at present.
1: Thank you. All of you have offered uh, very thought-provoking and interesting perspectives on this uh, significant uh, issue before New Yorkers Rahul Jain from the State Comptroller's Office, Will Watts from the Coalition for the Homeless, uh, Dave Wilkins from Legal Services Corporation of New York. Thank you all uh, for your thoughts.
0: Thanks for listening to Empire State Political Pulse with Jim Brennan. We hope you found it interesting as well as informative. Check out Jim's blog, Jim Brennan's Commentaries, for more in-depth New York political coverage. You can also find Jim on X at Jim Brennan NY. See you next time.